up everybody my name is james d fury and this is blackballed i'm giddy today everybody i'm giddy i get to interview a rapper you know that that's when i'm at my best i spend so much time interviewing journalists and and uh politicians and none of them know who Nas is you know and it really pisses me off because i think you're supposed to know who Nas is um and the guest that i have today is i, I hesitate to call her a canadian <laughs> because she's from so many different places she's a super super talented artist she's a singer a rapper she does reggae she can dance um and she's got an attitude that like comes with a smile and you just want to you know you, you don't know if you should like give her a pound or hug her or just bow down because she's just got so much talent um she's the five foot killer she's the top billa in manila she's the can't miss shooter from out in vancouver the lyrical taunter with roots up in toronto a hip-hop scholar an official globetrotter and if you step you might get stung with that warrior's tongue ladies and gentlemen major one Major. you are so good at this that was the best i'm sampling the <laughs> intro for like every live show i have uh, I can do better. Um, but yeah, thank you for coming. I know that. What time is it over there? 10 p.m.? It's 10. It's 10 at night. Good. I think we're like um, opposite world, a.m. to p.m. <laughs> the intro was inspired not just to be clever at the beginning of the thing. But I've, I sometimes wonder, when you bleed, does Hennessy pour out? Because you're the most <laughs> hip-hop person I've ever met in my life. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's hilarious. Actually, I was sponsored by Hennessy at one, what, at one point. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, 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 like, you know what I mean, though? Like, listen, like uh, uh, some people that don't really know hip hop culture, like they have to understand that you kind of embody it because one of my friends um, happens to be Ernie Panicoli, who is one of the greatest hip hop photographers of all time. Yep, he was right. shooting hip hop before hip hop even existed, it feels like. And I talk to him all the time. And, you know, he likes to talk about hip hop as a culture, but not just that as a spiritual thing and everything. But the main message that he seems to always bring to the table whenever we talk about hip hop is unity. And I feel like you like that. That intro was really to point out that you have roots in so many different places. And the way that you're able to communicate with the people that love your work in all those different places, to me, is an embodiment of hip hop culture. Wow. Um Thank you so much. That's that's so kind. Uh, I think that I'm really lucky to have been able to grow up in such a way that I'm like this ragamuffin, you know, like a piece of I'm born in Singapore. Then I grew up in partially in Malaysia, then years in Indonesia before I my family immigrated to Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like that kind of one teaches you to adapt <laughs> yeah. Two, I'm used to being like the odd one out in a room a lot of the times and uh that just yeah I, I don't know i think it just becomes a way of life after a while it totally does and you do it well do you, what, what are the main differences like i mean i i think i can sort of pinpoint the 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 similarities uh with, because that's the way the culture is like if, if someone if i went to 
I don't know, Finland. I would be able to connect with someone there who really loved hip hop, just the fact that we both really loved hip hop. But other than that, what are some of the differences between like, say, Jakarta and Vancouver or something? You know, like what, what, how does the culture differentiate? Many millions of people. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Well, that, I mean, that, that, that's, that's a whole like novel series basically. But I think mm -hmm. that, I guess on a, on a, on a day to day, you can point out all the differences between cultures, right? Uh, there's definitely, I could go on and on about the differences between doing, you know, doing music in Southeast Asia compared to doing music in Canada and North America. Um, but I think that when you look at a macro level and you, you start traveling enough, and I've been to like 25 countries now, I think, in terms yeah. of with music, that at that level, you start to see the similarities everywhere. Like everything is actually the same. Like I go to Jamaica and I see my homie in Singapore in the face of somebody else. And I'm like, you remind me just of my <laughs> homie. And, you know, like that, that feeling where you kind of recognize these different personalities that happen all around the world. So I think that, you know, for the sake of selling things and the commodities that were, you know, the way we're marketed to, it helps to put labels and, and separate things and that kind of thing. But when it really comes down to it, humans are wonderful, disgusting, nasty, great, <laughs> all, all of these things across the board, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. You know what? I, I wonder how it like impacts your content. Like if you spend enough time somewhere, you're going to be um, organically influenced. Like you're not going to be like, you, you, I don't know, maybe, maybe you sort of like take something and feel like and flip it in the major one way and then bring it back to the world. But does it impact uh, your content and how people perceive you based on if you've been in Kuala Lumpur for a year that they can tell that you've been there for a year? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. I mean, there, there's even rivalry between Singapore and Malaysia. And, oh, she's a Singaporean artist. No, but she's, her name is Maja. She's Maja Malaysia, like Maja Bole. Like, she must be Malaysian. So, and then when I was in, in Canada, everyone thought I was Filipino. So. Oh, wow. Well, we're, yeah, we don't know how to decipher races <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> okay, perfect point a uh, perfect example yeah. right now i'm dropping this song called wait in vain I it's a great song by the way well good amazing so track much. Yeah. um i wrote the song intentionally for it to be a pop track right maybe it's inspired by some reggae and some vibes but it's a pop song um but when i shopped it to pr and industry in southeast asia everybody told me Meja, this song is too reggae i was like too reggae. what does too that reggae. even mean yeah. you know it's a pop song like uh, Rihanna, Justin Bieber sings over reggae all the time, like, you know, the Maroon mm -hmm. 5, all of these things. But it's not identified in the same way, right? Because you're not necessarily growing up with this music. Your parents didn't play this music and it's not like seen as old time music. So there's a lot of stereotypes, cliches, ideas around these things. Uh, whether it's, oh, reggae is Bob Marley, smoky, smoky, right? And as you know, in Singapore and in parts of Southeast Asia, it's a very, very serious crime. So oh, then right. associate with it. Um, or it's seen as, oh, I think I've been told this is poor people's music, which I was like, wow, you know, it's the sufferer's sound, but I've seen some rich, rich ass people listen bumping yeah. to reggae too. You know, it's, <laughs> it's music right. for everybody. Um, and so when I reapproached uh, reggae platforms, I'm like, okay, it's too reggae. So I approached reggae platforms and they're like, this song's not reggae enough to be on our platforms. <laughs> so it lives in this strange universe.
offers in between, um, it can be frustrating, but I'm not yeah. mad at it either, you know, but it, it, it definitely can be frustrating sometimes. I agree with the reggae platforms. It was written as a pop track. So it's been a, a kind of a process to kind of educate industry here in Southeast Asia, not to be so scared of different genres. If Beto and Soundclash can make their music, then certainly Major One can make hers, right? Like, yes. Oh my on. God, Beto and Soundclash. It's been so. Do you long. remember them? I know. That's amazing. Hell yeah. They were so dope. Do you have any favorite Canadian kind of artists? Like, I mean, absolutely. You know, like, I was probably what, roommates Tanya? with all my favorite Canadian artists. Okay. Oh, yeah. um, let's see. Back in the day, I was living with the Mellagrove Band. I'm pulling it out. Oh, wow. uh, the Bicycles, Death from Above, 1979 who was always practicing downstairs while I was like writing raps upstairs. So oh. like, and this could also be the reason why genres mean so little to me, you know, like I'll be living with a punk band. They'll like, Major, come down and spit something on this punk song and just go do it. And then on the weekend, I play with an Afrobeats band. So, and yeah. maybe that's the beauty of Toronto. I'm not sure. Um, and absolutely, Zaki Ibrahim was my roommate for the longest time and she's wow. goddess among us. Um, uh, MC singer producer Isis Salam, who I think is Isis. brilliant. Oh, you remember she's her? So dope. I remember her. She is so dope. She was like a lyrical assassin, and she's so little. I believe. I think if I remember, so, like she, she's like you. She's a five foot killer, right? Like, yes. And yeah, I, I, she's gonna kill me if I'm wrong about this. But I think I gave Isis her first show, like her first oh. show in Toronto at the El Combo. Um, Tanika Charles, Tanika Charles was was staying with us for a little while. So everyone that kind of grew in this this time in Toronto with became my favorite artist. Eternia, of course, mm -hmm. uh, all day, every day. I toured across Canada with Eternia too. Oh, that must have been so much fun. Yes. It was like cruel. the two of you must have been hilarious together. Seriously. <laughs> I, I think I think he's more serious than I am. I was pulling yeah. more more teenage pranks than her on the tour. <laughs> Still, um, so you're in Kuala Lumpur now. Yes. How long have you been there? I've been here since this pandemic situation, so I guess about two years now. Oh, okay. And now, listen, I don't want to make any assumptions here, but I've been like looking all over your social media and stuff. Did you fall in love while you were there? Is that what happened? <laughs> no, it wasn't while I was here, pre-pandemic. Okay. Actually, I got booked by a promoter called I&I &I World in t Taiwan. Um, yeah. He was throwing the few reggae jams that were happening in Taiwan. And so I went there, performed. He felt bad because he didn't want to be like the creepy promoter hitting on an artist. So he waited yeah. till I returned to Singapore. And then we kind of started talking and... I mean, long story short, we got married during the pandemic in Malaysia. Oh, you're married. I didn't know you were married. I didn't look Newly married. I didn't yeah. even know I was married, but I am. <laughs> wow. That producer moves pretty quick and under the radar. <laughs> we're married now. What? <laughs> Where is okay. um, but, uh, no, but, but, but Wait, side, side note, yeah. he's from Scarborough. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, his, his, his whole exotic flair just totally plummeted then. <laughs> <laughs> no exotic flavors from Scarborough. That's Honey, out. can you go to the store and get me some jerk chicken? And then right next door, pick me up some nail polish because I know it's right next door. Yes. Yes. <laughs> hey, Main Shit Tuesdays. I was there every week. Dude, I, I, I tried to explain that to like people that um, aren't like people that would come and visit or whatever back in the day. And because someone asked me once, like, 
what why do you why do all the plazas in scarborough have jerk chicken and then a nail place right next door and i'm like <laughs> i honestly don't know i have no fucking idea and i miss that so much you know the things that you end up missing when you leave toronto and canada it's, it's yeah. the little things it's the little things yeah it's jerk hard to get like problems. i live in the sticks now I, I live in northern ontario in the sticks I swear to God, if I eat more, I'm sure Attorney and I toured there at some point. <laughs> did you tour in Killaloo, population 800? Because I don't think so. I'm in Toronto right now, but uh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, right, right, this second. But yeah, I live really. in the sticks. No, you you haven't. Trust me. It's like <laughs> the, the, uh, 45 minutes away from where I live are the big urban centers of Pembroke, Renfrew, Petawawa, okay. and Bancroft. <laughs> Well, okay, I know the big urban center. center. Yeah, <laughs> you never play there. That's where you drive through when you're on your way in or out of Ottawa. You're like, oh, look, Pembroke. Right, keep driving. Right. Just keep going. <laughs> all right, all right. It's cold. Um, I mean, so side note, I, I want to say that I really appreciated playing those small towns because what yeah. would happen back in those days is that um, there'd be like two Vietnamese kids in the entire school mm. and they'd come running up to me after the show and be like, yo, we get like, bullied every single day and suddenly you made somebody that looks like us cool and oh, yeah. we've never even been able to see someone that looks like us on tv we've never seen that someone come to the school and even rap and let alone an asian person so honestly in those days i was getting a lot of crazy crazy mail but those type of performances and and meeting and connecting with those kids was what kept me going yeah you know it's funny they say that um First of all, it kind of reinforces the fact that hip hop is a uniter, right? Like, like yeah. it, at the beginning, people were probably giving you a hard time because uh, you look different than normal, like everyday rappers would look like. But eventually, they'd be like, "Dude, you can't knock her skills. Let's just forget about what she looks like. She's got skills." And I saw you in an interview recently. The um, you put out uh, uh, you put out all that glitters is gold, and you, and you said that you had more men contact you. To let you know that they wanted to help, but they didn't know how. Yeah. And so as a female rapper, sorry, that's sort of what I was getting at. A sloppy little segue there. But like, you know what I mean? Like that, that, you know, the idea of being, first of all, I hate female rapper. And I hate it because I, I like, like, you know, I like it when, um, when people can just be known for their skills and it doesn't matter. And by the way, Lauren Hill, one of the goats easily if i were to create a super group of like rappers and i only could pick three she'd be my first choice because she oh, can sing yeah. right oh, yeah. but um i got to open for her in singapore dream come true really yes, how late hold on hold on how late was she for the show she wasn't at all <gasps> and then all these like kind of rumors like i don't know if you want to meet her major she's a diva and this and that Honestly, I met her backstage. I was, I'm not, I'm not a fangirl for nobody. I lived in LA and I met everybody and their mother and I was yeah. never a fangirl, but Miss Lauren Hill, I was blubbering. I was like, and then, and then I went to Jamaica too. And I really love you. And then this song got me through this and I was just blubbering. And she was so gracious and yeah. so kind that she just looked at me and just gave me the longest hug in the world. And I was like, I love that's you. Amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Cause I'm the same as you. I don't, um, my, uh, this my method when I meet someone famous is to look at them like they're everyone else. So they they come away with the feeling at the very beginning that maybe I don't quite know who they are and just makes like regular conversation because I find that those conversations are more real. Sure. But then one day I met uh, Karis one and it all went to shit. <laughs> 
it would all go to shit for me too. I think I legitimately, like at the time that was in LA, I didn't watch many movies. So I didn't know a lot of famous actors. So whenever we were in the studio and actors were around, I'm like, oh, are you a producer? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Can you get me a good deal with the universal distribution team? They're like, I'm Brad Pitt. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, Hook up that M audio box, man. Yeah, that's right. Um, you also said, let me just check my, because I did notes for you. I don't normally do notes, but I was so excited. Um, you once said that there were two major ones. One was a chick who was down with the boys when it came to Cypress and battling. But then you said you had to get really good at ducking assault. And you had to, and then you you also mentioned in an interview, and this is from memory because I didn't write this down, but I believe you said something like you had to remember that some of the people that you may be touring with, some of the girls that you may be touring with, maybe weren't as street smart. And you had to sort of like remember that just because you kind of know how to like handle yourself in certain situations that maybe you sort of had to put other people under your wing during tours. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that? Because that was interesting. I'm not surprised that that happened, but I found it really kind of compelling. Yes. I, I mean, this this kind of the catalyst for this was in 2019. There was a sexual assault that happened on tour to a team member of mine. So this girl was on tour to be my PA to help out with everything. Um, another artist on tour, she then went and made filed file a police report and everything that a sexual assault had happened. And this was in Australia. And what happened after that was me watching the promoters kind of like you know they gotta save their money so they didn't have they were either not equipped or educated on how to handle a situation like this on their tour or they just wanted to save their asses and their money so then i started watching the re the reactions of the promoter the reactions of the public what is the public told and then it continued there um i i took myself right off the tour right away we went back to singapore uh, where she's from and then commenced almost like two years of me kind of like walking with this girl speaking to her telling her like hey I'm not a therapist but she really just trusted me because I had been in this situation with her and and it was a very difficult situation I don't tour Australia very often uh, so when everything happened you know I'm just googling uh, sexual health clinics I'm googling different resources um, and again I should commend the tour that I did with Eternia called What's the 411 run by a lady named Tamara DeWitt we had to get training during that like sensitivity training during those tours because we were dealing with a lot of students at that time and that was like 10 years before this incident happened but all of that training kind of kicked in now where I'm like what do I do okay let me remember what what, what can I do um, and as I just kind of looked at the whole situation where it was like, a he said, she said, and oh, maybe it's just two Asian girls trying to get some spotlight or try to take, take someone's money. And I'm like, honey, I just lost like 20 G's taking myself off this yeah. tour. I'm definitely not doing this for the money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so when I really finally had the time to reflect on everything, um, Truth is, in this industry, I've definitely gone through a lot of shit, right? And as mm -hmm. as would, if you spoke to E, Eternia, if you spoke to many other female artists, yes, they have those similar experiences where, you know, producer calls you in, you go into the studio, suddenly the lights are low. I'm like, <sighs> I'm not here to record, am I? Uh, yeah. You know, the, these different situations. Um, and, well, I mean, I guess I have the mouth of an MC, So a lot of times I'd be like, hey... I, I was about to cuss. Can I cuss on your show? Fucking right, you can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. 
<laughs> Canada. Um, but you know, like being able to be very forthright and being able to say like, hey, I'm not comfortable. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Yeah. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do. It seems like it should be an easy thing to do. But when there's um, sometimes money, reputations, jobs, associated people riding on the line, it's hard for someone to get out of that situation. And so I thought of all the situations that happened to me over the years, which they're just numerous. And it got to a point where I was so experienced with it that I knew how to crack a joke to to make someone, you know, fuck off, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so when I reflected on it, I saw this girl that was, you know, only like she had been from Singapore. She hadn't really traveled that much. And I'm like, why should a person that came into the music industry wanting to make music, being interested in creativity, have to then learn how to duck rape, you know? Yeah. And just because her personality or someone else's personality is different from mine doesn't mean that they should be put in harm's way. So when I yeah. saw that, I was just like, yeah, there's, there's something wrong here. Um, I, I, I know with cases like this, it's, I don't have much hope for the law and for police to really do anything about it. But what I wanted to encourage is for industry, like other music industry professionals, other creatives to just um, have the... I was going to say cojones, but have the vulvas to just speak <laughs> out about these things and to yeah, be like, totally. hey, you know, like um, maybe this is not happening to me, but I'm, I'm able to call out that this is happening to somebody else. Well, two things that I thought of when you were talking, one of them was that um, big ups to your husband because he did it the right way, right? Seriously, right? He <laughs> didn't, you know, he waited for the uh, professional stuff to be aside yeah. and then and then he totally like uh, put his claws in you and then and dragged you to the altar. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, but really though, the second thing is that um it it, it kind of looks like like that situation, and I could be totally off on this, but you know, you're an artist, you're doing your thing for years. That happens. Is that the fold in the page that sort of denotes the next chapter of the professional musician known as Major mm. One? Because a couple of things I'm thinking of, one of them is that girl. You did her such a favor. You walked away from money. You walked away from the tour. And she probably felt protected. And I think that's hugely important. She, she probably felt respected or something, right? Like just the fact that you would do that. And the second thing is that you, you like it feels like you went from um, the artist to sort of the person controlling your own destiny it, with a situation like that as the jump off. Like you're now like a mother hand rather than just a cog in, in, the, in the machinery of the tour. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure, sure. Um, I think that, I mean, that's a, that's a great question, man, because I, I even have to reflect on that in my own life to say, hey, that did that turn the page? Because after that, I was promoting a lot of events happening, you know, bringing artists from the Caribbean over to Southeast Asia under the Singapore Dub Club. And after that happened, I just stopped doing events altogether. I'm mm -hmm. like, you know, the the hustle, the stress of being a promoter and contacting everyone and getting every the marketing in place and doing all of that. And someone comes along and so much selfishness and uh, uh, hatred commits an act like that and everything falls apart. Um, and I, I was going to say, I don't feel like I did her a favor, so to speak, because I would hope that would be like the human thing to do. You know, when somebody mm. gets hurt in that way, that's just the freaking natural thing to do. Uh, I, or I would hope that that would be the natural reflex. Um, I feel like I've always been very independent. Um, starting out in this industry, 
uh, in Toronto, shouts out to Jesse Otaki, when there was no one that kind of looked like like me doing hip hop. I learned very quickly that I had to be independent, right? Like he, we went into a couple music label offices and without fail, every single record label told me that I wasn't marketable because basically they had never had a precedent. They hadn't had someone that looked like me that was doing what I was doing that they could compare numbers to. Um, so when I, I looked at them, I'm like, I'm not marketable. Come on, guys. <laughs> so then from that kind of then on, I just took the road as an independent artist and um, figured out how to learn how to read contracts and, and do the whole thing. So in that way, I've always felt very independent. Um, but yeah. you're right. Something something does change. Uh, it's It's bigger than hip hop. Right. And when that shit happens, you're like, OK, this shit's bigger than hip hop. 100%. And I'm a grown ass woman and I have a position to say something about it. I miss those manifest events. Do they still you know, have a manifesto? Manifesto, sorry, manifesto. Yeah. That, Jesse, okay. that, he he did, he was the guy that started that, right? Manifesto? Yeah, absolutely. Jesse and Chikatari. Shouts yeah. out. Yeah, man. Like those were really dope events. Like that, those were culturally relevant. It wasn't just a stage with a bunch of artists on it doing their thing. Like there was art, there was like you know, uh, symposiums and con and conferences and all that kind of stuff. Like, I thought it was a really dope project. Well, er early on, when I first started, Jesse had the idea that he's like, Major, you should throw events called the M1 Academy. Because, um, <clears throat> you know, artists, you'll, you know, you'll get a platform, more people will connect, this type of thing. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, and I always wanted the M1 Academy to not just be about rappers right you want to mm. connect all the elements of hip-hop the b-boys the b-girls uh, the artists everyone just coming together in a hub and doing their thing and at the time che was the photographer for the event and he was beginning to kind of spearhead his own cultural stuff so yeah when that kind of moved on i moved away from canada and that moved on to be the man manifesto mm. um and of course you know I'm, I'm not taking credit for it at all but i mean these early days of toronto really taught us like what we wanted to see happen manifesto that's what i want to see happen right like so yeah. um yeah it was a beautiful time in toronto music for sure was that early 2000s early i'd say 2003 to about 2010 yeah in that that was a great time to be in toronto i used to live um just above kensington market at around that time like yes. uh, college and peter kind of thing and um it wasn't uncommon to walk through Kensington Market and see Cardinal shooting a video just randomly or seeing Absolutely. Socrates shooting a video. Like Kensington Market or Eternia shooting a video. Yes. Like Kensington <laughs> Market was just like the dopest spot for guerrilla uh, videos, right? And yes. I, I was wondering, the, the, the video... I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it, but the one where you're like being carried on the streets of Toronto. <laughs> Split second time. Split second time. Was that all gorilla, or did you you didn't get permits for that shit? Did you? No, it was all gorilla. <laughs> I love gorilla. I love gorilla shooting so much. Like, and so actually, fun. that 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 kind of we tried to build a Chinese emperor's chair, and I got all my guy friends to carry me, and they're all cussing me out because it was so heavy. But we actually built it from like a broken bed. Um, that we like chopped up and put together. That's the most hip hop and, thing I've ever heard. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> and I mean, shoot, like it, it was just amazing how that video came together. It was shot at like Spadina and Queen and college and is all around that area. Everything was gorilla for sure. Um, yeah. Team Ryuku, who were the stuntmen in that video, were just doing their thing. They were stunt guys and they liked the music. So like, yeah, we'll come down and just do some flips and do crazy stuff for your oh, video. Oh, that was dope too. Were they like springing off something or were, because they were flying by you. Like, were they going okay, off of like, were they, scene, were they there elevated? There was a trampoline in okay. one scene. I was going to say, I was um, like, are these guys just the craziest acrobats of all time or was there... <laughs> And that video came out of there was that era where Jin was rapping on BET. Uh, mm. The MC named Jin was rapping on BET. And I was like, this guy's so dope. Everything's going to be amazing for him. And when he signed to Rough Riders, his first song that he put out was like, Speak Chinese. And I was like, oh my God. Like, you know, there was all the stereotypes in the video of like girls in Chong Sam's serving tea. And like, I was like, no, what? Jin, you're just an ill rapper. What happened? And your song uh. had to be. Speak Chinese and in the background, someone's going chunga chunga chung chung, and I was like, Oh, this is the worst. So, you can't go from was... top five dead or alive, there ain't no best to speak Chinese. Yes. I don't know, you Yo, know. My youth. So, um, when I we shot when we when I wrote the kind of the treatment for split second time, I was like, Listen, I want to put every cliche of Asian people into one video, um, just to be tongue in cheek about it because that's basically what this Rough Riders video was. Thanks, Jim, yeah. for the inspiration. Oh, my <laughs> and, God. You should have just spoofed it and just totally laid him out. That would have been great. <laughs> well, no, I don't want to bring down, like, another, you know, like, he was just doing his thing. But I yeah. realized that the industry really saw Asian people in, in this kind of, like, this tunnel vision. So, you know, we had the Japanese schoolgirls. We had the uh, ninja guys, everything. But it ended up being my most played video by Much Music. And I want to say... I want to say it was dope, but also because it did have the imagery that was oh, the expectation of Asian people. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, it's almost like the producer would be saying something like, well, it wasn't us that said it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. We can still do it. Um, I, I got a lot of angry mail from other like Chinese Canadians. They're like, why would you make all these stereotypes and blah, blah, because they didn't understand it was a tongue in cheek video. So, yeah. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four Kids Flashback. Um, I want to play something, um, and uh, I hope it's okay. It's something that you put out about a year ago. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about what uh, what you think about the whole pandemic and stuff, and I don't want to get you in trouble, so I don't need to, like, you know, <laughs> I, I don't have any, I don't, like, whatever your opinion is, I'm totally fine with it. But if you don't mind, I'm just going to play this. I'm just going to play a quick thing of it because I thought it was really interesting. <laughs> Thank you. 
be listening to our public health authorities. They may, may be recommending what they call social distancing. Well, what does that mean? I'm about to briggity break it down to you three times to charm a hat trick. I biggity bounce around the viral township wild dramatic. No diggity, no one doubt I'm loud like when no Harajuku. Biggity make my way back home, you want some? I want buku. Salute you, namaste, no more handshake like you used to. People isolate, stay home alone and play Sudoku. Told you before and I say it again. No more gathering more than ten, lend a hand and text a friend. The situation changing many times and I'm still counting. Illuminati books are balancing, we ain't accountants. Conspiracy type theories floating around and we allow it cause it's all about the Benjamins dancing for the hour. Come on. If you can move it, then I move it. Keep it moving. Come on. If you move it, then we moving by the hour. Come on. If you move it, then I move it. Then we moving some more. Watch you moving. All this moving might be I love this. There's a few reasons why I love it. One is that um, if you if you look at the lyrics, you're you're not actually like saying you know um, fuck all governments for for making us stay inside because it's a big conspiracy. You actually go out of your way to sort of say that. Um, we just allow these conspiracies, I think if I understood it right, to, to just sort of foment. And so it would be easy for someone to sort of take that video and just or that track and make it seem like what you're what you're doing is entering the QAnon sphere and <laughs> saying that like it's all a big hoax and stuff. But that's not really it, is it? No. Um, I, I mean, this was I wrote this at a time where in, in Malaysia there was. They, they took it very seriously. There's like armed guards everywhere. I would try to buy oatmeal at the supermarket. There's a guy with a submachine gun at the oatmeal section, you know, and you're like, whoa, <laughs> well, this is this is wild right now. Um, and I got to see how quickly things could just change like that. So, I mean, listen, I think at the end of the day, my message is always that I just want people to have a choice, um, the ability to. Uh, have choice. So whether that's edu educating on all things, um, uh, not letting money be the only influence or the the you know the the tipping point of things, and just choice, just the power of choice. I think that's that's yeah. my stance. It was tough being in Canada during that. I, I, I what I kind of liked about that track actually um, is that at the very end you have Justin Trudeau talking. You took a sample of Justin Trudeau. <laughs> That, that was my producer. That oh, was that? <laughs> that was my producer from Portugal that took a sample. Wow. Well, yeah. you know, it was a it was a good, well placed sample. Um, yeah. But yeah, the 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 pandemic. Um, I I every time I have an artist on, I ask them this question because um, I feel like that we're entering a renaissance of music from that was born out of the pandemic because people mm. weren't able to sort of move. This album that you have is that a child of the pandemic? Freed, uh, the the EP that came out of that, yes, absolutely. And then the you have EP an album coming out in February as well, and your single's coming out, I believe, on Friday, right? Friday, yeah, <laughs> busy man. Yeah, uh, the Freedom Phase was an EP that came out during the pandemic. I put it out as a face mask that mm. you could scan the music on, and then you oh, could play awesome. it on Spotify and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to make a statement here. I mean, half the people were like, "No, screw face mask. Why did you make an album on a face mask?" I have people unfollow me because I put an album out as as a face mask. Like, don't you get the piece de resistance of this? Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Fall in Montreal. That's what I just, that's yeah, what you just reminded me of. <laughs> um, but yeah, that definitely, that whole record was definitely born out of the pandemic. I couldn't, we couldn't leave our houses. So, you yeah. know, best thing, Nick's best thing to do is buckle down and, and get some music done. Oh my I think gosh. that I, I, whole period of time is what brought me into like 
this whole Web3 space and NFTs and that kind of thing. Can you um, fucking explain to me what a fucking NFT is for, so, so that I finally understand? Like, I, I, I haven't felt this. I haven't felt like this and someone was like, okay, this is what Bitcoin is. And then 10 minutes later, I was like, <laughs> mm, like, I don't know what you're talking about. All right, all right. I, I think it's more, the better way to kind of describe it, I think, is I'm just going to share my own experience because mm, I always believe, as my friend Lethal Skill says, there's no faster way to get people interested and empower, uh, no, get people interested in something than by empowering them by putting money in their their pocket so what <laughs> happened was during this pandemic i'm like oh man we can't gig we can't whatever a friend of mine named uh, vandal by the way vandal. a toronto mc you know, yeah, vandal? I know who vandal is Some symbolic music yeah. so i still work with vandal to this day he gave me my second show in toronto and we still work together today that's how deep those toronto ties are wow i haven't i haven't heard that name in like 15 years or something yeah. oh my god so vandal runs a crypto label called dow records okay. that's trying to reinvent the music industry through web3 and crypto and nfts and that kind of thing so he told me to uh, mint the freedom fade songs as an nft I'm like, what's an NFT? And then he explained it to me. And I'm like, a digital what? Like, why is anyone going to pay for an MP3 and a JPEG, you know, or, 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 or a GIF? Yeah. <laughs> so he explained it to Bless me that, you. thank you, that you could, you know, buy the Mona Lisa. Oh, you could buy postcards of the Mona Lisa. And that's the equivalent of like right clicking and, you know, saving and stealing a, a photo off the internet or, uh, you know, saving a song off the internet, but you don't actually have the Mona Lisa. You have a postcard of the Mona Lisa. So only the NFT, which is uh, marked by metadata on the back and shows that it's authentically yours is your Mona Lisa. You're saying as the artist, this is what I'm marking as my piece of art. You own the authentic copy, etc. All right. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference between buying a JPEG and you're buying something more, more collectible and valuable. So I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but let me just do this anyways. So I minted the NFT because it was the first major one NFT. I wanted to keep the price high because it's your first one, you know. Right. So I released five pieces and I priced it at the equivalent of $120 USD. Right. So I'm like, who's buying this JPEG MP3 for 120 USD? Lo and behold, I sell three. So I was like, oh, this is amazing. I just made $360. And uh, yeah, this is great. But also, in a year's time, the blockchain that this $360 was sold on, the Ethereum, blew up. It got huge. And that same $120 that I charged for the NFT was now worth almost $4,000. What? Wow. So, then so wait, if Bitcoin crashes, does that mean that... Um, that doesn't impact your sales that you've already received, but it would impact future sales. Or future do you? Sales. Yeah, absolutely. So you don't. You, so you cash in the crypto as soon as the thing is sold. Uh, I do. I I have a policy of cashing fifty percent because I That's believe I do believe it'll keep going. So I take some for for the rent and I let the rest do what it does. You know. Yeah. Um. So anyway, a thousand dollars right now. If you can tell me what. Uh, if you can explain Bitcoin to me in less than a minute. <laughs> in less than what? A minute. Oh, God. <laughs> so uh, I understand. I'm not going to give you the money because just in case you're really good at explaining. <laughs> all I can say is Vandal told us about Bitcoin about like 12 years ago. And all, all of us were like, okay, with your monopoly money. And then 12 <laughs> years later. 
Yeah. Like, no, listen, I, I know that it, I, yeah, I don't want to get into that because I, I have no idea how it establishes any value. That's the only thing I don't understand. Mm. There's an infinite, there's a, there's a finite amount of mining that you can do in the blockchain. <laughs> and I just want to jump off a roof. I just like, okay. The voice, okay. But this yeah. is, I think, an important point to make, especially for creatives. We're so used to this web two world where it's like quantity. How many followers? How many likes? How many subscribes? How many views? Right. You're like, it's quantity, quantity, quantity. And suddenly, you know, three sales of this NFT made me more money than the 20,000 people on my IG. Right. So then suddenly there was a world where it wasn't about quantity, but it was about the few people that really valued what you do and, and will do. So I thought that was an interesting. Can, can we sell this mindset. podcast in an NFT and then split the dough? You want to do that? Absolutely. I'll help you mint it. Oh, my God. If you could just give me mailbox money, I'll just let you do whatever you want. It's like if I can go to my mailbox once a month and get money, then I'll be Any happy. Money every day, you can mint anything. Anything's an NFT. Oh, gosh. Can you get me in touch with Vandal, please? There's so many things I want to sell. I want to sell cursing out politicians, you know? Like, I just want to be able to sell anything. Yeah. Go ahead. Could be done. Could be done. Yeah. <laughs> Someone in the background's like, we could do that. We could work with this. Yeah, we could work with it. Um, yeah, that's a weird thing eh? for artists that are like, you know, not still teenagers or in their early 20s. Like we have to play catch up with this technology stuff, don't we? Um, Yeah, I suppose so. Like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm scrolling Instagram and this kid's like, oh, I just lost $60,000 in crypto. Better, better ride this wave out. I'm like, shit, when I was 16, I wasn't losing $60,000 on crypto. You know, <laughs> I was scrounging the couch for change. <laughs> But I think that artists that are experienced in our later stages and in careers are perfect for this kind of technology because, you know, back what, what can you do with your back catalogs? They might be just sitting there, but now you can yeah. give all your back catalogs a second life, right? By trying to, re, um, you know, by presenting it in a different format to a different community, et cetera, et cetera. Like MC Hammer is killing the NFT game right now because he's a legacy artist. Yeah, that's amazing, actually, because um, there's so many artists that that I always thought, especially in Canada, you know, Canada is funny because it's like, there's a lot of good artists here. I always thought the hip hop um, industry in Canada was its own worst enemy. I didn't think it had any imagination. Right. Um, <laughs> I find, I still to this day, like at least once a month, marvel at the fact that one year Ivan Barry signed one hip hop artist and it was Tom Green. Like I bring, <laughs> yes, I remember that. you know, so, awesome. uh, yeah, and, and you know, I, I don't know Ivan Barry personally, but I'm sorry, but the Bucks had to stop somewhere. Apparently, it was him. But you know, they're like, like I, my buddies from the Pocket Dwellers. Like, I would love to see their shit, like their back catalog get sold, like so that they can finally, dude. There were ten artists in a band trying to make it in Canada. Like, yeah, it, you know, it wasn't the business model didn't work for them. But with this NFT shit, you know, I could see I could see artists like that like making a comeback at least in, in 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 listenership. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I, I'm now working with Vandal as the creative director for his Dow Records because I I went through it. I'm like, oh, I get it. So yeah, tell the pocket dwellers to holler at us, man. Seriously. Yeah, I will. I, I will. think we just did something with Sai from the Oddities too. We just minted something for him. Oh wow, Remember the, the Oddities. oddities? bookworm yes. those guys yes. yeah it's been a long time since i've heard a lot of these names but uh yeah yeah um what was your first concert Ooh, <laughs> this is this is how i paid my dues what was that place <laughs> called on spadina crescent um shit oh uh comfort zone 
comfort zone. The comfort zone was my first concert. Really? Was it Dacozy? Because yes. he still DJs there. No way. <laughs> um, it was, uh, well, Jesse Otaki moved into my home. I put an ad for a roommate. Jesse Otaki showed up as the roommate. And I was like, well, do you like hip hop? He's like, yeah, I like hip hop. I'm like, okay, good, done. <laughs> There's no so way the conversation sounded like that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he had a concert that f- featured an artist named Mystic from the Bay Area. And it was an all-female hip hop jam. Oh, nice. And at that time, I was really super shy. Like, I started as a graph artist. I was never going to be an MC in the forefront, that kind of thing. So... I just wanted to prove to myself one time that I wasn't too shy to do it. I just like, you know, just challenge yourself that one time. So I'm like, hey, you you had someone cancel out on that show. I, I, I kind of rap. I got some spits. I got some I got some rhymes. He's like, shut up. No, you don't. All right. All right. I'll put you on. <laughs> so he put me on and then I was just going to do it one time. And from there, I got a vibe commercial, much vibe commercial when back when much vibe was a thing. Wow. Wow. And and then it just kept going because anyone that wanted to book me would just have to say, who's that Chinese girl that raps? And there was like just nobody else that was that Chinese girl that raps at the time. <laughs> it's <was> always major. <laughs> so it was easy. Like, you know, I, they, they, they knew how to find me. Um, now, when when a lot of Canadians think of Canadian hip hop, there's there's sort of like the 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 names that um, pop in people's heads often are like, um, you know, Socrates and Chaclair and Chaos and Cardinal. Um, you know, the rascals and people like that. How was your relationship with them? Or was oh, there the, any? With, with any of them? Artists? Yeah. It was cool, man. I Honestly, it, it all felt like family in Toronto. And if I didn't know certain people well, it just felt like extended family. Um, you know, wherever I went, like even when I bumped into Cardi, he just give me this head nod. I'd be like, oh, Cardi, head nod. And in those days, um, someone was asking me, in Malaysia who to book at some point I had mentioned Cardinal Fischel because I was a huge fan and then he ended up playing Malaysia at some point too so there are connections that happened that yeah people might not even know that happened you know so didn't yeah you, it, didn't you both work with Akon yes he worked with Akon <laughs> yeah but you did too didn't you no, I, I didn't work with Akon, but I worked with a producer named Che Vicious, uh, or aka Che Pope, that ended up linking me with a lot of American rappers and that type of thing. And are you, like, friendly? Like, are you homies with any of the American rappers? Because I always ask people, uh, Canadian rappers that, too, because I, I had Classified on, and Classified was talking about how um, he wouldn't tell me names, and I wasn't going to ask them for him but at the time, but, but he was like, yeah, most of the American rappers are cool, but they always size you up first, he said. You get sized up a little bit first when you first go down. And then eventually when they hear your shit, they come familiar with you and they like you. Then you're like, okay, you know, but was there a sizing up period? I mean, I think there definitely is a sizing up, which I expect for, for, for hip hop and for MCs. So I wouldn't expect any less. Um, But in the industry side of it, I would get sized up because people thought that I was like the games video girl. You know, uh, if I was sitting at the studio and that kind of thing, you know, they come up to me like, Konnichiwa, mommy. Hello, kitty. You know, I'm like, hello, kitty, motherfucker. Um, <laughs> so I, I got a lot of Konnichiwas in my time working in the industry in L.A. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I think the sizing up happened where they figured they had me pegged. And then I just get behind a mic and spit and people are like, whoa, what just happened? So de- definitely a lot of confusion. Yeah. It's a tough country to make it uh, in. It's a tough country to put out a single in sometimes, or at least it used to be. Um, yeah. 
what I was going to ask before, actually, I want to go back to something because is this as the NFT stuff and, and the sort of like the web 3.0 thing is, is what a great smack in the face to labels who are still trying to rip people off via Spotify and things like that. Eh? Like, is it a reaction to that? You think, do you think that's where the innovation came from? 100% it is like if you are in kind of Twitter spaces and the spaces where web three music is happening, um, a lot of the time, like a few of the music industry panels I was on, they're like, well, you know, I'm not going to trust a bunch of, you know, computer nerds with my career. I mean, we are music industry professionals. We've been doing this for years and we know what we're doing. So there still is very much is still rooted in the music industry, tr the traditional music industry. Mm -hmm. But people that I've worked with in Web3 are music industry professionals for like over 20 years that just got tired of the business model that wasn't being fair to creatives. Um, yeah. So... It, it on the blockchain you can't lie right you can see everything there uh, the transactions that are made the splits that were decided who got paid whether the money made it to them um, in the traditional label right when you you know make some money then maybe you have to wait till like the last quarter and then they'll pay you out in the last quarter basically when you sell anything on web3 the splits are done automatically and boom it's in your wallet as soon as it's sold so there are a lot of things about this model that then kind of does give, you know, um, some problems to the traditional music industry, for Good. sure. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I never really, like, uh, had to deal with any, like, labels um, when it came to, like, uh, any, like, I, I, see, I used to throw events. And sometimes you would get a label guy in there and he'd be like, you can't have that logo behind stage. If you're, if we're going to shoot something because we have a sponsor <laughs> with one of their competitors and, and my response was always can fuck off <laughs> it's not your stage <laughs> blur it out in post, you know, I don't care. And they would, and you know what they would do? They'd be like, okay, because they knew that they were asking for something that I didn't have to give. And I don't think that they were used to being spoken to in, in like that, but like, but if I have no, you have no leverage with me. If I'm the event producer, you really don't. I booked your artist. You know, yes, therefore, anything yes. that you see inside, unless you want to pay the venue something, you know, you can blur it out and post. But now it feels like they don't have an identity anymore, which I fucking love. You know, mm, that's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, there, there's so many applications of it. Like I, I run a publishing label here in, well, it's based in Singapore called Nusantara Records. Nusantara being the name of Southeast Asia when it was ruled under one sultan and before it was like, you know, split up into all these different countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, um, Philippines, that kind of thing. Mm. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to represent the Southeast Asian archipelagos. And so we do publishing and placements, you know, sync and licensing and that type of thing. But what I realize is like, you know, when I have songs where I have a song coming out in November, uh, that's a remix of Not All That Glitters Is Gold. It's like, you know, 15 women from around the world that collaborate on it and everything. But when you handle this as a label or as a publisher, it's a nightmare, right? Because you don't now have to figure out <clears throat> paying out splits for 15 different people, not including the producer. And did everyone get paid? And did it go here? Did it go there? So it becomes a unique opportunity to be able to use Web3 tools mm. to be able to make these things a lot more seamless. And I imagine a future where like you could buy my NFT and that gives you a license to um, do a sync placement for my song for X number of time period. Oh, you know? Yeah. Like to so use I it for in promo material or to use it in like a short yeah. film maybe or something like that, that kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, the 
to me, the one interesting thing about the Board Ape Yacht Club whole phenomenon is that when you buy your overpriced, your very expensive NFT from Board Ape Yacht Club, <laughs> yeah. um, that you own the IP. So that's why Eminem and Snoop can show their board apes in a music video you could make like your board apes pajamas you can you can then now sell that brand right wow. you have the you own the ip of it so yeah there's there's a lot of interesting experiments happening in the space for sure um what's so last night um i'm, I'm at my cousin's house my cousin is like the 63 year old dutch man okay and he very seriously sits me down because I told him uh, i'm like I, I told him all the guests that i have on the podcast or whatever and he sits me down and he's all serious and he's like he goes, James, can you um, give me a quick tutorial on the type of hip hop I should be listening to? Because I've never really listened to it before. And so he started off like this. And by the time he was done and he went to bed, he was like this. Right? Oh. But he's still a 63-year-old Dutch man. But now he is a Mesa One fan, a Nas fan, Respect. and a Tupac fan. Yeah, Respect. really. So it's, th those are the three that I played from. I played him Nas first because that's my favorite MC. And then I played Dear Mama because I figured that's the kind of Tupac song that maybe he could get down with. And then I played <laughs> Warrior's <laughs> Tongue because I know he <laughs> likes drums. And and so now you're in, You not only you're in his top five, you're in his top three. He only knows three. But still, you're in his top three and you're beside Tupac and Nas. So there you go. What? This is amazing. Yeah. This I know. Is but okay, here's even better a story to segue from that. Yeah, yeah. So the beat for Warrior's Tongue was originally for Nas. It was created by Che Pope. Uh, I was working in LA at the time. Che, che was one of the producers on Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, worked with Aftermath. He worked with Kanye. He worked with all the, all the kind of people that we, we see in, in the mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. And that beat, he said like, yeah, yeah, I think I, this is a banger. I, I want to, you know, play it for Nas. And I was like, if I could demo something on this track and it's dope, can you get me on a collabo with Nas? <laughs> that, was, that was the plan. That was the plan. That, the hard yeah. ask, man. You got to do it. You know. You got to yeah. shoot for the stars. You got to try. You know, That's like right. <laughs> I just figured there's not the likelihood of a Singaporean girl that fell in love with hip hop when she was eight years old in a like wet market because I found a pu bootleg Public Enemy tape, and suddenly I was in a room with all the producers that made all my favorite hip hop music and I was there working. So I'm like, okay, it's now or never, you know, like, let me do this shit. So, um, so that room, that, that rep that Nas has of not being a very good beat selector could just be that people scooped the beat away from him before he had the chance <laughs> to consider it. <laughs> I'm not sure. I have no comments on that, but um, after I spit warrior's tongue, cause um, Travis, who's also working on the beat, Travis Von Cartier, he was like, just make something anthemic. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make an anthem. It's going to be an anthem. Oh. Be like a and so anthem. sometimes people get tired of the songs that they created that were anthems. Well, you know, sometimes they, they get a little, I don't know. Um, like the, yeah, you just get tired of it. You spat it like what, like a thousand times and everything like that. Are you the same? Like, like, do you not listen to stuff for like years and years and then listen to it and be like, oh, fuck, I, I love this track. Like, or, or, or do you kind of get bored with your own shit like most artists I know do? There's a lot of songs that I probably haven't listened to once it's released. I haven't listened yeah. to it in a long ass time. But with Warrior's Tongue, when it came out, that whole kind of Burning Man ecosystem of DJs mm. loved it. And it got remixed like 60 times. Oh, my God. Um, I, when I went to, do you mind if I play a little snippet of it? Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm going to get dinged, but I have won every single challenge from Facebook and Google. When I put shit up that uh, when I like when I interview classified or Shad or whoever and I put up their music, 
um, <laughs> I always get dinged and I'm always like, fuck this. I put on my glasses and I'm going to challenge this shit. And I always win because my, my, they're, they're like, is it because it's yours or, or other? And I click other and I'm like, the artist uh, that I had on as a guest, it was their music. And I submit this should be viewed as a promotional opportunity given the upcoming album release or the upcoming tour. Bam. And then like 10 minutes later, they're like, you're right. We, we unmuted it. Right. So Absolutely. I'm going to play that because <clears throat> this is how I introduce uh, some people in my audience because I don't really have a hip hop audience, to be honest with you. I do when I do when I interview rappers. Um, okay. But I'm sort of like in every kind of guest guy. Like I'll interview like politicians and journalists and rappers and comedians and whatever. Right. So um, when I introduce people to this song, it's been like 20 people over the last five days. Everyone's just like, Holy fuck. I'm so, I'm like such a major one. Fan. If you have an it's analytics tech. guy, they're going to see a lot more activity out of Toronto in the, in the next, like for the last week. Or that's amazing. Yeah. Actually, that song just, the remix of that song just got placed on a Canadian show called Fakes that was made on by CBC Gems. So I'm like, whoa, you know, like so, yeah. so many years after. But I'll tell you the, the biggest story around that song was that, yeah. um, when that Burning Man community kind of got interested in in the song and they kept remixing it, I was just like, you know, I saw a Ronnie bags. Size remix. Ronnie Size <laughs> remixed it. I was I like, seen Holy the Ronnie shit. Size remix. That's amazing. Yeah. I was sitting on like a glowing snail and I was like listening to like these giant things I'm, in Burning I, wait, Man. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're sitting on what? A glowing snail. Oh, you know, Burning, Burning Man. Man. They okay. be, they're building yeah, yeah. like crazy. <laughs> I thought you just you know, had crazy. one in your house. So I was like, Jesus Christ, this woman is fucking They're just crazy sculptures and everything moving in, at Burning Man. And I was hearing yeah, yeah. all these different remixes of my song. And I was like, this is mad. So um, an, a producer that, I don't even know my like legal rights around this thing. But a producer named Bass Nectar basically yeah. picked up the song and said, hey, Mejia, I love this song. I can't live without it. We need to sample it for an upcoming indie album that I have. Hmm. Um the song's called Speaker Box, but we're not going to say that you're a featured artist on the song because it's kind of like just sampling a song. You know, like if they sampled Aretha right. Franklin, I wouldn't say featuring Aretha Franklin, right? So Fair enough. Um, I'm like, okay, okay, I guess. Sounds legit. He's like, I'm oh, just using a tiny, tiny piece of it. I'm like, all right, cool. Um, I made the mistake. I had just moved to Singapore and I was feeling very, very lonely. I was away from my resources. I was mm. starting from scratch all over again. And suddenly there was this producer that came in that was just like, yeah, I can't do without you this song. You have to let me sample this, blah, blah, blah. So I signed a bad deal. And that was my uh, own fault. I should have had representation. Yeah. I should have had someone look at it. But I signed a bad deal. Um, so... From there, the song went on his indie album. But a couple of years later, a friend called me from Times Square, New York. And she's like, why is your voice coming out of every speaker in New York Times Square right now? Uh, I was like, you racist. You just think all Asian girls sound the same. And she's like, no, <laughs> it's definitely you. <laughs> so she holds it up. And, and I was just like, oh, shit, it's Warrior's Tongue. Why would they be playing Warrior's Tongue in every speaker out of Times Square? Turns out that the song that he had made got picked up for the um, the official trailer song for Fast and Furious 8. And Fast and Furious 8, of course, has the budget to debut their movie and their movie trailer in every speaker in Times Square. So wow. my voice was going off in Times Square. Um, but I hadn't even been made known that, you know, this song had gone on to be the, the trailer song and soundtrack of Fast and Furious so needless to say, like, you know, when when this all went down, I was like, OK, well, I got screwed. You know, like I, yeah. I didn't make very much off of the whole deal. 
Uh, I signed a bad deal. It went on to be in like Asphalt and these video games and everything that has to do with oh. Fast and Furious 8. You need to contact and the Rolling Stones lawyer who fucked over the Verve, remember? Ooh, that's... You remember that? Ooh, so the Verve sampled the... the for Bittersweet Symphony, they sampled uh, the violin, but they apparently cleared it all first. And um, and there's two things that are really awful about this story is that, one, it was the Verbs only hit, and the Rolling Stones oh. ended up taking all of their money. Oh. Um, and because they, they said that they used too much of the sample. But the kicker is that violin sample that they used was not even a Rolling Stone instrument being played. It was just something that they happened to... Um, have as part of their catalog that they didn't even release that was done by another artist that they just happened to like own because they possessed it and it was just like oh fuck and the verbs lead singer was like a you know an addict and everything and then that happened and he's like oh my god and so you're you're kind of the rolling stones in this situation but in a way that like is legitimately like that's fucking awful like they like so did they just take the whole hook yeah, it, it's actually, it's not a small sample. The entire hook, the whole, oh with the little guns come on, I want to bust guns, like the full stretch of it. Well, let's so look, anyways. Can, yeah, go ahead, please. Then then years after that, I was like, okay, well, I, I kind of like, you know, live and learn. Let me do publishing so I make sure nobody else gets screwed over like that. You know, like I, I try to advise artists all the time now and then live and learn. But years later, he's now facing a statutory rape uh, charge. Uh, multiple statutory rape charge Ugh. and what happened from there so they're still going to court through it they're still proving it whatever going through the court cases but one thing that happened was all these female collaborators that this producer had started coming out and saying like yeah we've been like ghost producing for this dude for years we've wow. never gotten any credit we've never gotten proper remuner- remuneration as like that That's was action. the minute it hit me where i actually felt violated and i was just like shit he has this down to a science. He's been doing this to multiple people, always female collaborators, yeah. and it's been going on. So I, class I just action? say that class action um, lawsuit, maybe you know. I, I don't know. I, I've I've let the I've let several lawyers take a look at it, and they're just like, "You're shit out of luck." Fuck! This now you got to deal with lawyers. Like, this person knows what they were doing. Basically, is what I got. So from if someone's listening to, to this, lawyers. yeah. Yeah, you know, like, you know, I think I need to like holler at Celine Dion's lawyer or something and yeah, just make it yeah, happen. Exactly. Okay, listen, we're gonna play it and then come back and then uh, I'm gonna let you be because I know you're probably really busy, but I think I have there's another show coming up here. But just, um, this is uh, this is what started it all, isn't it? This is like your breakout, right? Yes. Which I know you love listening to still to this day, every single time you hear it, right? Like, this is <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> actually, I haven't gotten tired of this one. Okay, good. Hey, you. Wherever I drop my musical anchor, never you try to conquer.
Roar this evening Yin yang changing and creeping No time for sleeping My heart is heavy and deep And under hustle like grind Throw your sign where my charm go be All my people they find They got that street sense Now they always on time Don't need no pretense My steez is fresher than pine Sent to shine double back Got that polish and the piece Called um Ooh Need me Bass on the rhythm Hearts beating a spark at night The summer's leaving Breathing in the scent of the breeze An architect with the keys Skylock with the Nazi dreads Yo Take a peek Heard a whisper on approach Big things just like wine Secrets always riding hope Motorola always beeping off the chain Maintain They like to call me daddy Like my name was Kane I fight Call me caddy Raised against the grain On the down low daddy I'm just playing the game Yo With their nickel guns Come on I wanna bust guns On the run when I come with the And, uh, yeah, I mean, everyone I know that's ever listened to that song is just like, that is like, that isn't, it's not even, it's too good to be called an anthem because I don't <laughs> feel like it has like a, like I'm sure some of the construction is sort of pop formula in just in a sense, but it doesn't sound like anything that you would ever put in a pop category. You know? And it's fucking gangsta. Like it's, it's, it's just Respect. a dope track. It's what, honestly, I would say, just as I'm thinking about it now, because I'm thinking about all these breakout hits that like that started the, the the careers of Canadian rappers. It's easily my favorite. Respect. Thank you so much, man. I mean, yeah. I wrote that one from the heart. It, it's gone around the world. It's had many, many versions and that kind of thing. Mm. And I, I think it really is how I feel, you know, when people meet me and I'm like five foot nothing. But, <laughs> you know, a warrior spirit. I just wanted to make a song that made people walk into work, even if you're working going into like your cubicle that you just feel big and bad when you walk up and you're like, yeah, yeah you feel brave right. about life. That's right. <laughs> Five foot killer through Manila, like Pacquiao, right? Like, isn't that how it says something like that? Yeah. And the yeah. video was shot in, in Manila in a hood called Tondor. So shout and out was to it, Tondor. Was it guerrilla shooting there too? Absolutely. We had, I had to go in and get the approval of the Don of the, of the hood. And then he was, <laughs> You know, I, I'm like, I was, I was scared that he was going to be this big gangster dude. He was this little guy. And he's like, all right, I like you. Hi, I'm Don. Like, all right. Like, <laughs> Let's make, yeah, hi, I'm Don. Sure, yeah. go ahead. Would you like some yeah. scones? Uh, so that's great. That's <laughs> your videos, by the way, they seem to like, a lot of your videos are done by different directors, aren't they? Because, they, but they all look really unique in their own way. Like you, you were using drones before people were really using them and stuff in your videos. Yeah, I, I'm really blessed to work with so many amazing directors. I think the early early on, Matt Burke was the director that I worked with for um, Split Second Time, the hazing, Montreal in the fall. Mm. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the hazing, but I'm like the bride of Frankenstein with death from above as a werewolf and <laughs> a vampire. Yeah, so, I, 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 I didn't see that, but the fall in Montreal one, I really like because I was born in Montreal. Oh, and shit. it just okay, and it was right. and it was such a departure from what I've heard from you before. I thought it was really dope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Matt, Matt Burke did a lot of and, and we've been trying to get on a call like out of nowhere, maybe a month ago, Matt Burke hit me. I was like, Major, what are you saying? I was like, oh, my God, I've heard from you. Let's do this again. <laughs> so crazy. the connections are still there. I'm so grateful that the connections are still there. Yeah. Um, I've always felt that art and creativity is, goes beyond the music. You can be creative in your hustle. You can be creative in the in the video. Everything's a representation. So it totally yeah, is. Okay. And you embody a lot of it. You 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 are um you are a super talented woman, and you are an entrepreneur. And you almost uh, got me to understand what the fucking NFT is. I'll get there. 
I'll get there one day. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you want to apply? I know you got your single coming out and then you got an album coming out soon. Then you got something else coming out, like a video or something next month. Can you just do the rundown? Tell, talk about whatever you want. And, uh, and yeah, let us know what you're doing. All right. So this Friday, I'm, I'm a little underslept right now. This Friday, <laughs> I have a new single dropping called Wait in Vain. Um, you know, I was written what, during the pandemic when I was feeling kind of down. And this beat from Canadian producer Kevin Perkins uh, really just changed my mood. So it's it's just a chill song. And I want I hope that it did for me this rhythm and this vibe did for me, did for do will do for you what it did for me, which is just put you in a good place, in a chill mm. place, in a, a vibey place. Uh, other than that, I have a Jamaican jerk marinade out here called Suka Suka Sauce. What? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I it's it. funny. I can buy something that isn't grace. Right? <laughs> yes, it is the world's first 100% all natural, no preservatives, no no added salt, none of that. Um, but basically, I, will, I listen. I will plug the shit out of that if you send me a bottle. I will literally I'll like I, I will like every show be like this entire podcast was brought to you by Major One's Jerk Sauce, like whatever it's called. I'll do it. <laughs> and and suka suka in in Malay and in Indonesia, you know, like when you're like, why didn't you go to work today? Ah, suka suka la. So I was like. <laughs> Okay, this reminds me of like ah, Iriman, everything nice, you know, suka yeah, suka. Yeah. But then I find out what suka suka means to Russians. Oh shit! And what does so it mean? basically, it's like bitch horse sauce. <laughs> well, that would sell in Russia probably. Good, it could be a thing. It could be a yeah. thing. Anyways, I digress. But the the suka suka sauce is basically to kind of change the stereotypes of reggae music and how people perceive that music in this part of the world. I want to right. just kind of and, and give the these artists here that. Uh, don't have a platform, a platform to perform and that kind of thing. So doing it through the food. So I'm going to oh. be launching a lot of stuff around that really soon. Are you I selling it in Canada? Not yet. I don't have a distributor. And because it has liquid, it's very difficult to just like mail it, you know, like it has to be a proper container and, and yeah. distributor and that type of thing. But okay. I would love to. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen. Um, I'm so funny. I love your music, but now I just can't stop thinking of jerk chicken. So, <laughs> yeah. it it's it's legit. I'm sorry. Like it, I, much love and respect to every Jamaican auntie and uncle that let me cook with them and be yeah. in the kitchen and smell the food and sweat the same sweat. Oh, and yeah. um, yeah, I, I really worked hard to make something very authentic. And and yeah, that's that. Awesome. <laughs> I love talking to you and I would love to have you back. Um, so let's, uh, let's try to do something. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. I'm going to, I'm going to really lobby heavily to get cases and cases of, of your jerk sauce. <laughs> suka suka. Is that what it's called? Suka suka sauce. I'm going to send it to all my Russian friends and they're going to be like, Oh my God. <laughs> it, it'll be a, it'll be a thing. It'll be a thing. <laughs> Major one. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us today. A joy and pleasure. Thanks for conversating. Okay, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Peace. Major one. Is there anybody more of like everything than she is? I don't think there's one person that's like her. She's amazing. Um, my big, 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 big thanks and big respects to Major One for joining us. Uh, tomorrow we have David Wallace on the show. And then on Thursday at 7 p.m., we have uh, former NDP MPP of Parkdale, Sherry DeNovo. Sorry, I just paused there because I was like, what, what else? She, she has so many things on her bio. Um, and I just <laughs> I just want to nail all of them because uh, she's one of the most interesting people ever. And uh, we had her on, uh, Dean had her on his show last week. It is a little bit of close space between um, a, a guest on his show and a guest on my show. Uh, but I promise 
I will talk mostly about drugs. <laughs> she used to sell LSD out of her Bible. Um, so uh, th that's right up my alley. Um, so yeah, big thanks again to Major One, and we will see you next time on Blackball. Thanks, everybody. the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.